two weeks ago, which you may not even remember at this point, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we were, we were in the house of worship. Uh, that's where Solomon brought us. He brought us to the house of worship. It was very clear uh, that that was what he was doing. And this is not just figurative. He was actually doing these things. So he actually did this. And one of the things that he was telling us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, are you listening? Are you listening? Um, that, was, that was one of the key points of that text. Are you listening? So my question to you is this, are you listening? Not, not, I'm not saying that kind of like, are you listening? I'm saying, are you listening? Were you listening when the Scripture, when uh, Brett read the Scripture this morning? I know it went in your ears, I know that. But are you listening to the Spirit of God? When we sang this morning, are you listening? I know you, we hear those around us, we can't help but to hear that, but are you listening? Are you listening? Uh, t- today, uh, Solomon is going to pivot. I mean, you can almost feel it right there in the text. He's going to pivot and he's going to walk out of the church. And that's what we face. Here's what we're going to see. He wants us to see it. He doesn't want to just describe it. He wants us to see it. He wants us to see and to feel that immediately upon leaving the house of worship, there is a lot that is wrong. You know, when you go on vacation and everything seems to go right, you have beautiful sunsets, you have great meals, you've got great memories, and you know the end's coming, you're going to have to go back, go back to work, and you just want to take some of that with you. You just want to take it, and we kind of do, we take pictures, we mementos, but you just kind of want to take the feel with you, you want to linger a little bit more. I, I think that's a little bit what this feels like. You're in the house of God, and, and you have to leave, you've got to go back, Monday's coming. You've had a great time with, with a song really ministered to you and there was a conversation that just really, it just helped your soul. But, but you've got to go back and you've got to face the, could we say, the real world. This is the real world, but the, the problems that are out there. Solomon has with whomever he might have been with, maybe just himself, been in the house of God and was encouragement, and there was joy, and there was worship, and there was thoughts about God. But now he turns around and he moves out. We face this with bills, unexpected repairs, finding out someone was upset with you that you thought you were okay with, and all of the things that can happen even outside of our control with the news. I mean, it's, it's all there and it faces us. So in chapter 5 and verse 8, we didn't read, we started a little bit later in the text. He turns around and immediately he's faced with what? Injustice and oppression. So it's not even like he eases back into it. He turns around and it's like he's standing at the door of the temple and he looks out. What does he see? He sees injustice and oppression. There's a quote from commentators that have really enjoyed reading with this study, a book called Recovering Eden. 
Uh, He says this, The house of God is no rabbit's foot or genie bottle that when rubbed makes bad things go away. Why go to church? This is almost like an Ecclesiastes-like question. Why go to church if going to church doesn't change the world? Why go to the house of God if when we come back out of its doors during the day, we still have to lock our doors at night? Why? Right in the middle of this dilemma of him being in the house of God and walking out into the problems of life, right in the middle of that is money and wealth. So today we're going to talk about money and wealth in this passage. There's really two points that I have here. First of all, the problems that come with money and wealth. And Solomon is very very good at laying out some of the problems. And he's just going to lay out problems. And by the way, uh, the problem is not money. The problem's not money. The Bible, and I've said this many times before, the, pro- the Bible is not saying if you have money, that's bad. It's not. Solomon himself was an incredibly wealthy man. We're going to see in the text that money is a gift from God. You say, well, I didn't, I didn't get much of that gift. No, you have more than you think. But money is not the problem. But with money, at any level, whether you are the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich, there are some inherent problems. And then we're going to attempt to put that into perspective from the text. Let me just delineate the various ways that Solomon talks about problems with wealth. See if any of these fit you at all. And if they don't, then just be cautioned, these are problems. Number one, more money does not ultimately satisfy. Now, that's, I think, fairly obvious. I think in verse 10, he makes it very clear. He who loves money, don't notice, doesn't say he who has money. It says he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So that's a very clear point. What I want you to notice is how he illustrates it. Because he has you stop and think. Look at verse 8. So he's, he's pivoted, he's out of the house of God, and here's what he sees. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. So let me stop right there and ask you a question. Should either one of those things bother a human being? Yes or no? Yeah. I mean, it's normal, Right? If you see someone who is incredible, if you're walking, if you go to New York City and you're going there to go to a three-star restaurant and you have to walk by a homeless guy, does that bother you? I mean, it does. In human beings, it bothers us. So what he's stating is very obvious. This should bother us. But notice what he says. Do not be amazed at the matter. (laughs) What? And here's why. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Let me keep going. And then he says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, I'll admit, when I read verse 8, I cringe a little bit when it says, do not be amazed, because I kind of am amazed. I mean, if amazed is not the word that helps you, 
then, then put in a word that's like that. You know, put in your thesaurus. When, I, when, when you're going by someone and they are homeless, and it is like 30 degrees outside, how do you feel about it? What do you, what do, you do? How does that impact you? I am amazed. I am, I'm kind of like, you know, how does he going to make it? What should I do? Should I do something? Is it okay for me to have a warm... I, you know, there's thoughts that go through your head. So when he says, do not be amazed, I'm actually, I feel kind of like that's the wrong thing to say. So how do verses 8 and 9 fit in with money and wealth? Well, look at what it says. Do not be amazed. The high official is watched by a higher and there are higher ones over them. What is he talking about there? We would say government bureaucracy. Now, let me just ask you a question. If I said to you, don't worry, the county officials and the mayor and the government officials and the people of Washington have it all covered, you don't have to worry. Does that help you? For months, we, we, uh, we um, uh, have a bus stop, and I usually drive the kids down to the bus stop, and uh, we turn on the local radio station. I, I like the local radio station. I like local news up in Lehigh Valley. For months, the news was the corruption of a government official in Allentown, Bethlehem. Months. It was a story. It was the top story for months. I didn't even know much about the story uh, apart from listening to it for months. And not to diminish Allentown, Bethlehem, but, but that's low on the totem pole of all of the bureaucracies. And even in that town, there's corruption. So why is Solomon telling us to take comfort in government bureaucracy when everybody knows you really are not going to have that reaction? And the answer to that is because he knows you're going to have that reaction. Let me give you a second to that in verse 10 when he says, This is gain for every land in every way when a king is committed to cultivated fields. Now, in the context of Solomon, we're thinking, oh, he was a kind guy. But folks, he was the exception to kings of that day. You have to remember that the people he's talking to have a history of being under Egyptian rule. Their concept of somebody over them taking care of them is not very high, and their concept of the king or the pharaoh being selfless and benefiting the land is not very high either. What's Solomon's point? I think Solomon wants us to argue with this verse. I think Solomon, this is, this is when we got into this, we were saying this is a different genre of literature And he's stating things in a different way to get us to think. And what he wants us to think about here and get the point is in government bureaucracy, people are not naturally going to say, oh, I don't have to worry about being homeless. I'm sure the mayor, I'm sure the county official, I'm sure the people in Harrisburg, I'm sure the people in Washington, D.C., I am sure that Republicans and Democrats are going to get along. I don't have to worry about anything. He is sure people are going to understand that point of really not trusting the bureaucracy. He is sure that people are going to understand that there is corruption in money and bribes and all of that kind of stuff. He is sure people will understand that because many of them had lived under that. And here's what his point is. That 
Man, we look at that and we are like, holy smokes, those people are corrupt. That government official that used $50,000 of taxpayer money for a private jet to go to a concert over in da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Who does he think he is? You know, we understand that. And then he gets in verse 10, and like a left hook, he says, that corrupt heart, boy, you better be careful because that corrupt heart is in you too. Not to the same sins that they may commit. You've never been a king. You've never had to rob people under your kingdom. But that heart, that that corrupt heart that motivates the corrupt bureaucracy, that motivates the corrupt king, that heart that looks at money and wealth a certain way and has to have more of it can be in a teenager. It's inside of us. Solomon's point, more money does not ultimately satisfy. Number two, when you have wealth, other people will want some. Does it really say that there? Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What does that mean? You get more money, people will be a little nicer to you. People are going to want to sit at your table. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? <laughs> I love the way he says that. What, what advantage is it when it's kind of like almost sometimes you're just kind of watching it happen. It's like, oh, I wish I could influence this. But you can't keep people away because that heart is inside of us. This illustration may not perfectly fit, but it's what came to my mind as I thought about this. Um, those of you who are uh, younger have younger children, I guess we can all relate to this, but when you have younger children and, and your parents do something for you, you know, you get together, uh, and, and you, who usually pays when you get together? It's your, your parents, right? I mean, um, your in-laws or whatever, and you know, they usually pay, at least at the beginning, you know, they're just, hey, don't worry about it, we'll get the check, da 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 it's kind of a normal thing to do. Um, I remember... Uh, when we were, we were in Colorado, and, and my uh, dad and my stepmother came to visit us, and uh, Hannah was a baby, because I remember having the, the car seat carrier with me, so she was probably six months old, and uh, we took dad and, and Nancy down to uh, see the Flying W Wranglers, and uh, you know, cowboy show and all of that, it was going to be a lot of fun. And I remember walking in to the thing, and, you know, Dad, like normally do, he always pays for everything, don't worry about it, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, as as kid, and you should do this, kids, say, hey, I'll take care of it. And I remember we were walking in, we were walking in, we were walking to the ticket thing, and I said, uh, Dad, I'll take care of it. And he said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that. And I remember thinking to myself, what? (laughs) I did. I just, you know, we had a new baby and I was a youth pastor. I wasn't poor, but it was kind of like, and going to the Flying W, it's not like a dollar menu thing. You get a show and all, you got to pay for this whole thing. And sure enough, you know, I paid for for it. (laughs) 
my dad's not alive today, but he would, he would love that story. He would love that story. In a small way, you know, I mean, here's somebody that, that gave me life, who cared for me. Sure, why wouldn't I pay you? I, I think it was seventeen fifty per person at the time. Why wouldn't I pay? You? There's something that just, you just want to hold on. And, and, and other people are going to be more than happy at different times to kind of join in. And yet, our own selfishness is revealed. Number three, money can disrupt the restful flow of life. Verse 12, these are problems. It doesn't say everybody has all these problems, but these are potential problems. Verse 12 says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Isn't it a great feeling when you've worked hard and you can go to bed? Isn't that a great feeling? It's just, did you know that's the way God created us? That's the way God created us. People work hard and they go to bed and sleep. Then it says, whether he eats little or much, it doesn't matter. You know, if you, if you work hard and you don't have like a whole banquet every night, but you got a little bit to eat, you feel satisfied because you're made that way. But listen, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What was normal for Adam? And by the way, this is not saying rich people are wrong. It's not. It's just saying that if you have, if you have lots of wealth, we think we, would be, we think we would be able to really sleep at night knowing I've got money there in case my water heater breaks or my air conditioner breaks or my car breaks or something happens. we got plenty of money. Don't worry about that. What he's saying is the rich guy, he had plenty of money. He didn't have to worry about that. He even goes to bed on whatever the best meal you can think of is, but he can't sleep well because his mind is working. What was normal for Adam? Adam worked hard all day, and he slept well at night. That's what he did. He worked hard all day, and he slept well at night. Why? Before the fall, why could Adam do that? Because he had satisfaction in his work. He was not worried. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. If this guy has half of an operational conscience, I mean, if only a smidgen of his conscience is at work and he sees justice and oppression, he's going to be bothered by that. He's going to be bothered with all I'm doing is feeding my face and there's hungry people. He's going to be bothered with that and a number of other things hate to keep bringing an illustration up I've used many times, but I, a few months, a couple months ago, I used the illustration of the book Thirst, Scott Harrison. If you haven't read that book, great book. Uh, again, audio book read by the author, fantastic. Founder of Charity Water. That point is exactly what bothered Scott Harrison. He was, he had his life set. He had what he wanted, but he was, he was in Liberia. He was looking at children who, who had severe facial deformities and it wasn't their fault and it bothered them that he had so much and he, he couldn't really help these people like he wanted to. That very point in the life of a guy like that. February 21st, 2019, there was an article by a guy named Charles Duhigg in the Wall Street Journal. 
The title of the article is America's Professional Elite, Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. So this isn't by a Christian man that I know of. And what Duhigg talks about is going to a reunion of his classmates from Harvard Business School. Um, by the way, Duhigg wrote the, the popular book, which I have in my queue of, of audiobooks of, um, I think it's called Habits or something like that. You may have seen it. It's a bestseller book. Um, so he goes to a reunion of his classmates of Harvard, Harvard Business School and was struck with the conversations. And here's what he said. He said, quote, it was insanely stressful work. He's talking about a guy that, a particular conversation he was in. He said, it was insanely stressful work done among people he didn't particularly like. He earned about $1.2 million a year. Would you like to earn $1.2 million a year? I mean, to me, that sounds so awesome. You know, it's like, what would I do? What would I do? What would I fix? What would I get? What would I do? Pay in college? You know, I just, I just feel like you'd be set. Don't you hear 1.2 million? You're like, yeah. But he hated going to the office. Here's what the guy said in that, I feel like I'm wasting my life, he told me. When I die, Is anyone going to care that I earned an extra percentage point of return? My work feels totally meaningless. The guy's talking Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Number four, problems with wealth. There is so much pressure and risk with money. There is so much pressure and risk with money. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. You know, people who have wealth don't just bury their wealth. Most people don't. Um, I listened to an interview yesterday with the woman who helped to found the company Burt's Bees. Do any of you use Burt's Bees products at all? I think their lip stuff is the best lip stuff, but it's so expensive. Um, Bert was the guy who had the bees, and he put on the outside of his hives Bert's bees. Um, and, but he, he didn't manage money well. He's kind of buried. He's passed away now. Most people don't take money and just kind of bury it. Most people take money, and they want it to work. That's wise to do that. This text says that there's huge risk with that. Let me, let me tell you, let me give you another passage, another passage, because many times we've said Jesus is not in the book of Ecclesiastes, but Jesus talks Ecclesiastes language. Here's a passage. You may want to turn to it, Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Have you ever had inheritance issues? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever had inter- somebody passes away and a lawyer and da 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 and feels money and all that? You just think it's the death of somebody. People ought to be compassionate. Sometimes they aren't. Divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, who made you a judge or arbiter over you? Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He said, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, we don't know. We kind of assume it's this big estate. It could have been a poor guy, you know? 
And it was just a little tiny bit of money, but he wanted to get his share. So Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, so there's the, the moral lesson. So then he tells a story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this, because he wants to be a wise steward. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger barns, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with what he just did there. I mean, I think back to uh, Egypt and Joseph. Joseph was doing that. He was advising Pharaoh to do that. Build bigger, store up, save in case there's a famine. Nothing intrinsically wrong. But here's the problem, and it's in the heart. He says, verse 19, to his soul, Soul, you got enough. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. That, oh, hey, that's his problem right there. He's out drinking. No, no, no. These are not, the, the words that Jesus are, is using there is not, you know, some immoral lifestyle. He's using words of people who were enjoying life. But there's something wrong in this man's heart because God says to him in verse 20 in this parable, fool. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think we mistakenly look at parables like that as parables for people with lots of money. That would have not been the crowd that Jesus was ministering. Certainly people with money but probably more common people like ourselves than we would imagine. Number five, and certainly obvious, this isn't something that's new. Of course, didn't Solomon say there's nothing new under the sun? You can't take anything with you when you die. Verse 15, language that is also used in the book of Job. He came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again naked as he came. And she'll take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Ryan Duckworth came into this world naked. And he didn't have anything with him. I know his parents, I understand all that. But he didn't come with an Apple Watch. You know, it'd be nice if they came with some of that stuff already. <laughs> but they don't. And we don't take it with us. This particular point, and, and if for you this hits home, this particular point is particularly terrifying to some people. Again, all of these, you, you look at all these things and say, well, I don't see though all those. There may be one or two. He's given potential problems. This particular point may be particularly terrifying to you. Let me ask you, would you choose option A or option B? Your net worth is, this is option A, your net worth is $375 million and you're 32 years old. But you have to accept verse 17 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, which says, 
All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. That's option A. Now, I'm not, I'm not making these binary to where everybody with money eats like that. I'm just saying, if you had the choice, would you choose option A? You got $375 million. You do not have to worry about a flat tire. You, don't have, you, you can get a flat tire and call Lexus or BMW and have them drive a new one out and just dispatch of the old car. I don't know what people do like that. I would love to do it. Just, just away, away with the old vehicle. Would you choose that? Or how about option B? You're 75 and you don't have much in the bank. As a matter of fact, you do struggle with anxiety if you live to be as old as Lottie Bronski. But your kids love you, and you have some great memories. Do you know what's so revealing about just a simple thing, and it's only two, I know it's much more complex, is the option A guy dreams about being the option B guy. But you can't just flip it. You can't just flip it. We need to put money and wealth in perspective for sake of time. Let me just give you these points as we move to the Lord's table. Wealth should be enjoyed. I think that the way some people grew up, it's, it's that, you know, if you have a little bit of money, it's like this guilty pleasure. You know, you go out and you buy ex, like an extra topping on the pizza and it's like, oh, I feel guilty about it, you know, and, and so forth. This is not a, a pat, verse, verse 18 to just blow it. I've seen what's good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil, but here's the thing that comes with that. The power to enjoy life, not just money and wealth, the power to do that comes from God. The power to do that comes from God. So let me give you three sticky note takeaways. Number one, be a giver, not a hoarder. Now, I know right now you're like, oh, you're thinking of your basement. Oh, uh, no, I'm, I'm talking about just your life, man. Just your life, dude. Be a giver, not a hoarder. Number two, enjoy the life God has given you. Enjoy the life God has given you. Yeah, most of us are not going to be in the $375 million category, but I don't mean to be dumb when I say this. Figure out how to enjoy the life God has given you. If that means you go home this afternoon and you're sitting there and there's a lot of things wrong, but all of a sudden you hear your heater kick on and you think to yourself, I have a warm house. Do you think I'm dumb in saying that? What I'm telling you is that having a brain that can enjoy life instead of being an increasingly lemon-lemon because you don't have it, and it's not serving it up, and this is not, and this is not right, and I have some concerns, and, blah, 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 and we just kind of live and just ratchet down on life, and then it's over, bud. It's done. And, and you just died a wrinkly old lemon instead of doing what the text says and enjoy the life God has given you. Number three, enjoy and love God most. Matthew 13, verse 22 Jesus gives another parable, and he says, What was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. 
What do you need to do to enjoy and love God most? Let's pray.